slight to draw upon um, the Buddhist story of the four heavenly messengers and reflect upon some of the timeless themes that emerge from that story. Themes that can be very equally alive in our own stories as women. The story of the Buddha's meeting or Siddhartha's meeting with the four heavenly messengers is really a story. On one level it's a story about the, the shattering of illusions. It's a story about making changes, turning points in our lives. It's a story about finding the authority and the inspiration to move on in our own search for understanding and freedom. On one level, this story of the meeting with the messengers, it's a warrior's story. It's, all, it's very certainly a story about waking up and about treasuring authenticity and freedom. When Siddhartha was born, his father, the king, invited into the palace the local soothsayer or guide to forecast the future of the young prince. And the local fortune teller proclaimed that the young prince was destined either to be a very great king and leader of people, or he was destined to be a very great teacher of wisdom. Now, the king, like many fathers in this world, had some investment, of course, in perpetuating himself and his expectations and his values. So he did really everything in his power to ensure that Siddhartha would follow in his footsteps. That he would be happy and is so happy did everything he could to make sure that Siddhartha was so happy in his role and life of being a prince that he would never ever want to look beyond those boundaries to anything else. And so through the life of the young, of, of the young prince, Siddhartha was showered with every possible pleasure, every desire was answered, he was entertained and comforted and distracted and never were the realities of life ever allowed to touch him. In the story, it said that even the wilting flowers and the wilting leaves in the grounds of the palace would be removed before Siddhartha could ever see them. So that all he ever saw was the young, the beautiful, the pleasing that was contained within the walls of his palace. Until, of course, in a moment of minor rebellion, Siddhartha decided to go on a trip outside of the palace. And in that venture, encountered four events or four signs, which are called in the Buddhist tradition, the four heavenly messengers. And these four events were so radically different from anything he had ever encountered before that his whole vision of reality was altered. Now the first event, or the first sign that Siddhartha encountered, was to see someone who was elderly, an aging person who was stooped and frail and wrinkled. 
the second encounter was for Siddhartha to see someone who was ill, who was sick, in pain, who was weak. The third of the encounters was when Siddhartha saw the body of someone who had died, surrounded by grieving relatives. And the fourth of the encounters was Siddhartha seeing in the crowd a person who was dressed in renunciate's robes, carrying a begging bowl, with a face of radiance. When Siddhartha met the first three events of aging and sickness and death, he felt he was stunned, as the story goes. He was stunned, and he turned to his driver, his servant, and he said, what are these all about? And his driver answered him, this is aging, this is sickness, this is death. And Siddhartha could only ask, you know, is this something that's also going to happen to me? To me? And of course he was told, yes, this is life. Soon after this, Siddhartha left the palace to begin his own search for an enduring happiness, an enduring understanding and freedom. And for six years, for the first six years, practice a path of asceticism, of austerity, of self-denial, of abusing his body, of self-mortification, going from one extreme, of course, of total indulgence to this other extreme of total self-denial, eventually realizing that neither extreme was a path of freedom or a path of wisdom or compassion and finding eventually a path that was truthful, authentic, that led to a very deep sense of awakening. It's a little bit like that contemporary line, you know, where a student goes to their teacher and says, you know, what is the key to happiness? And the teacher answers, good judgment. And the student says, well, how do I get good judgment? And the teacher answers, experience. And the student asks, well, how do I get experience? And the teacher answers, bad judgment. <laughs> Siddhartha's life is a little bit like that line. How do we learn from experience? How do we learn what is wise, what is good from experience? There are many, I think, many different chapters in the story of Siddhartha's departure from the palace and entering into this journey of awakening. I think one of the themes that is, I feel, significant is this theme of moving on, of questioning, of searching. In the meeting with Siddhartha, of Siddhartha with the four heavenly messengers, it was a meeting actually in which Siddhartha speaks about his eyes being opened by that which was unknown or unfamiliar. And that meeting with the unfamiliar or that questioning of the, that arose from it, of it being a way of shattering illusions, now this theme of moving on, and I think it is the quality of the theme of questioning which is really important in that story, because it's not a questioning that is kind of based on blame or despair or depression. 
It's not a moving on of rejection, of saying, oh, you know, life is hopeless. But instead, in, in encountering those four events, what was ignited in Siddhartha was much more a spark of a kind of divine curiosity or a sense of possibility. And with that, too, a kind of mature dissatisfaction with a way of life and being which had previously been seen as satisfying. And I think that mature dissatisfaction is actually part of all of our journey. I mean, we've probably all encountered the kind of immature dissatisfaction where we just know what is wrong with others, wrong with life, wrong with ourselves, where we blame and judge and yet become more and more contracted in that. There's also a kind of mature dissatisfaction where we sense perhaps that there arises a sense of possibility and with that the capacity to question. I think for me in my own journey that that was a particularly important theme. And for me what actually began my own particular journey was going to India, but not just going to India, actually going into a village of very impoverished Tibetan refugees who lived in really dire circumstances, horrific circumstances, and who'd witnessed incredible terror and and horror, and yet to encounter then these people in these circumstances who were able to live with such a sense of radiance and happiness. You know, it has to make us question what it's all about. Siddhartha, in his life, I think, not only lived in a physical palace, but also a palace of illusion. A palace of unreality, where pleasure and indulgence and self-centeredness were perhaps the fundamental principles. He lived a life where apparently nothing changed. Nobody died. Nobody got old. Nobody got sick. He never had to deal with loss, with disappointment, with challenge, or with anything that was disturbing. And then part of his palace of illusion was also living a life that was defined and frozen by the expectations and needs of others. The expectations and needs of his parents, his history, his culture, which in turn, of course, formed his own kind of self-image. His own sense of who he was. I'm a prince. I'm invulnerable. I'm removed from you know, the, the difficulties of life. It was a palace of delusion. It was equally a prison in which the jailers were so hidden. It was no doubt a sublimely comfortable physical palace, but it wasn't very free because it was also a very fragile palace that was sustained, obviously, only by managing to shut out and deny the realities and the real challenges of life. His story is often not so different from our own stories. 
that we often too want to create these own, our, our own palaces where we attempt to have a place of safety, a fragile refuge that is dependent on life not intruding. Now Siddhartha was startled into wakefulness. This is also, of course, sometimes very often, matter of fact, we can almost rely upon it, that we are also startled into wakefulness in our own lives. The death of someone that we love or care for, the loss of someone who we're close to or of something that we really cherish, moments when we're disappointed or unable to have what we really want, moments when we apparently fail at getting things the way that we want them to be. Sometimes those moments are really painful and probably you may have noticed that sometimes in those moments we are incredibly awake. We are incredibly awake. I mean, nobody else has to ask us to pay attention in those moments. We are awake. And in that being awake, that sometimes life startles us into, we are very often faced with our own assumptions about who we are and about what life is all about. Sometimes we're humbled, very often we deeply question our own beliefs and the kind of fragile nature of our own palaces. Now pleasure and safety and certainty happen to be the addictions of choice of Siddhartha. The illusions that formed the bars of his particular presence now these addictions he essentially sought to disentangle from through seeking its their opposite, through abusing his body, through living a life of total uncertainty and hardship and unpredictability, choosing an ascetic path where the emphasis was on overcoming, on transcending, at least in the beginning, on enduring. Now those pathways may actually not be appropriate for us. They may not be pathways that we need to follow. They may be a, a place where our story may actually depart from the story of Siddhartha. I mean, a lot of Siddhartha's story in those years was about shattering pride and ignorance and um, arrogance and feelings of superiority. They may not be issues that you as women may be particularly struggling with. They may not be the way out of our own palaces of illusion. Yet there are parallel themes in the story of Siddhartha's journey and the story of our own journey. There can be places where we do share some of the same illusions that perhaps invite exploration and understanding. If we're not going to be entangled just in beliefs or living a life that's defined by the, the expectations or the needs of others. There is, I think, a very curious and inevitable tension that is involved in any journey of awakening. I think there's a curious and inevitable tension that's involved in bringing about 
any real change in our life. And I want to talk about that tension for a moment. On one side, or on one hand, we are both exposed to a teaching and perhaps exposed to an inner value system that speaks to us a great deal about finding acceptance and grace and openness and the capacity to be with things as they are. We're exposed to a teaching and perhaps an inner value system that speaks to us about finding contentment and peace, learning to let go of struggle and resistance and craving and aversion, and to discover harmony with what is. And this is a very major part of this teaching, and it's often a very major part of our own life lessons, of learning to find that kind of acceptance and openness and grace, that sense of enough in each moment, and that sense of being willing to learn from each moment even when it's difficult or painful or challenging. Now that invitation to discover acceptance and grace and openness and harmony with what is, of course needs to be balanced with this other part of this teaching and this other part of our own value system, which is about seeking change and transformation. You know, the invitation to discover acceptance and grace, of course, is not an invitation to surrender investigation or to surrender a sense of possibilities or to surrender the, the kind of commitment to transformation. And there's a curious tension in holding those two. I mean, it is possible to use spiritual concepts such as acceptance and being with what is to justify some really unacceptable circumstances in our lives. You know, we can say, oh yes, I'm learning to be more accepting, you know, as someone is kind of, you know, kicking our feet out from under us in every moment. You know, I'm learning to be accepting, I'm learning to be with what is when we're in the midst of something perhaps which is really, truly harmful. Yet we can also see that we can be also be using concepts to justify, uh, to kind of spiritually justify transformation, can't we? We can say, you know, I'm really seeking to fulfill what's possible for me, and at the same moment be totally traveling that pathway based upon rejecting and denying and, and aversion for what is happening. And it takes, I think, a lot of wisdom and a lot of clarity to know how to balance both acceptance and the desire for transformation. That acceptance doesn't become a kind of resignation to a sense of limitation or lack of possibility. And that transformation is not a kind of misuse or a kind of enlightened way of putting aversion. It's in a way, it's a place where the, the kind of the warrior and the benevolent grandmother actually need to learn how to coexist. Now many times in our lives, 
we do leave our own palaces of illusion. Whether they're palaces of pleasure or the illusions of permanence and safety and control and self, sometimes we make those changes really gracefully and organically and wholeheartedly. And sometimes events in our lives evict us from our palaces. You know, we can go through life for many years, perhaps, you know, within a body that's healthy and well and bubbling with vitality. Suddenly there's a moment or a time of major illness. There may be loss where in places that we previously clung to and relied on for certainty, change in places that we've looked to for permanence. And we are asked always to meet with grace those new realities. And it often does rely upon our willingness to let go of our expectations, our belief systems, our desires, and of course to let go of what is already past. In many ways, when we come on a retreat, we leave our palaces. It's, I think it's a real transition, a real journey of leaving our palaces. Because when we come on retreat, you know, for one thing, we're not in control the way that we used to, the way we used to being in control. Our perhaps usual mechanisms of entertaining ourselves, distracting ourselves, or avoiding things we don't like really don't work or they become questionable. Some of our strategies for staying distant from the unpleasant or the challenging were asked to surrender. Sometimes a lot of the images and beliefs that we have about ourselves, about power and powerlessness, about vulnerability or invulnerability, about fear and control, sometimes a lot of those images become very visible to us. We're visible to ourselves. And all of the ways that we define ourselves by our thoughts and our fears and our experiences, as well as the way that we define others, suddenly it's all up for grabs. Nothing is actually quite so sure as it used to be. Now that, it is why often when we come on a retreat, we do experience, you know, those feelings of, of discontent, of aversion, of pain, of unpleasantness, of shouting at the world, because somehow our whole sense of self is not quite so solid, or the glue that holds it together suddenly becomes a little bit less sticky. They are turning points for us. It's one of the turning points in our lives. It's one of the places where we leave our palaces and we enter into something that we don't know. There's a wonderful poem by Mary Oliver, which I think really talks about that transition. It's called The Journey. And she said, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their advice, 
though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your arm. Mend my life, each, each voice cried, but you didn't stop, you knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. When we begin to leave our palaces, we may not disturb only ourselves, but also disturb others around us. When you read the story of Siddhartha's departure from the palace, you never do read anything about anybody holding any going-away parties for him. It's not always change within ourselves. It's not always met with applause. Sometimes when we disappoint the needs or expectations of others, we are not always applauded. When change happens within ourselves, not through rejection or blame, but through questioning and courage, inevitably it invites everyone around us to change. Everything around us changes. Nothing can stay still. Nothing can stay static. And sometimes that change around us happens gracefully, sometimes reluctantly. And yet whenever we are on any kind of journey, I think it asks of us to be incredibly clear about what we are committed to, what this is about for us. And fundamentally, it is about authenticity. It is about being free. It is about living in the spirit of freedom and compassion. One of the chapters in the story of Siddhartha that I think we are also invited to really explore and question is understanding our own relationship to our bodies. You know, Siddhartha went one way, this business of abuse and asceticism and, and self-denial for a time. But I think it is also important for us to understand the way in which our sense of self gets so entangled and invested in our bodies in a way that can lead to so much struggle and judgment and fear in a way that actually leads us to, to live in opposition to reality. Now it seemed that Siddhartha seemed to be somewhat surprised by these encounters with aging, sickness and death as if this was new information for him. For us, this is not new information. I mean, we live in a world with the mixed blessings of mirrors, for one thing. We live in a world 
where we are exposed to a whole variety of different people. But because we are not surprised by this information of aging, sickness and death, I don't think that necessarily translates into meaning that we always know what it means to live in harmony with that information and those realities. Recently I read a magazine, you know, I love reading surveys. Surveys to me are incredibly entertaining. But anyway, I read this survey of a thousand women in England done after Christmas. And a thousand women were asked what they most deeply wanted to realize in the coming new year. Well, any guesses about what two-thirds of the women answered? Thinner. Thinner. Compassion, freedom, happiness, meaning, vitality. Were any of these mentioned? No. Thinner. I mean, it does say something about the kind of reality that we can live in and the kind of tangled relationship that we can have with our bodies and with life. The kind of relationship that often is filled with so much in investment and holding that even our bodies are turned into a kind of tyrant used to measure our worth and value used in a way to measure the kind of relationship of, of respect and, on, and integrity we have within ourselves. It can be placed, a place, this relationship with our bodies, of so much fear because we're constantly meeting life. Part of meaning life means that we're exposed to these endless messages, of course, of body perfection and loveliness and acceptability. And of course, part of the messages of life is that everything changes and that everything is fragile and that nothing can stay the same. So no matter, so often we're in this position where the image that we want to sustain is being eroded by reality. This is not always a happy place to be. Apart from anything else, you know, all of the holding that can happen around our bodies, apart from the suffering that can create inwardly, it also just takes so much time. You notice how much time it takes. You know, again, recently I was reading about how, you know, because people are very busy often in their lives, how you can go to lunch hour body maintenance clinics. You know, and have you can you can have liposuction on your lunch hour, and collagen injections on your lunch hour. You know, so that you can leave this incredibly harassed life and yet also be pursuing this illusion at the same time. I think it is important for us to really see the way in which not our bodies, but our image and our illusions around our bodies become places of suffering. It's not in any way to suggest that our body should somehow be dismissed or treated with contempt. Not at all. But to know where our image about our body is a way of treating ourselves with contempt and dismissing ourselves. These 
the lessons, actually, each one of us are always, it's an ongoing lesson, isn't it? Because it's always changing. Our bodies are always changing. It's an ongoing lesson for us to learn how to be in harmony with those changes. And it's not even a lesson that we can hand on to somebody else or inherit from somebody else. I mean, I'm sure many of you were around in the 70s and 80s, you know, where so many women were so actively engaged in kind of overturning these stereotypes around bodies and around body image and actually finding a lot of freedom in that. And yet somehow perhaps also having the, the unrealistic notion that this was somehow a freedom that was going to be handed down from generation to generation. And recently when I was in California, the, one of the teachers there told me about the sort of ep- epidemic of anorexia and bulimia of the young girls in the high school there. Because it is a lesson we learn over and over. And that we learn for ourselves where there is suffering and where there is freedom. There is, I feel, a kind of ongoing debate between the truth of our bodies and the image of our bodies. Now, the truth of our body is actually really pretty simple, isn't it? The truth of our body is that every day they change. Every moment we are aging. One day our out-breath will not be followed by an in-breath. This is not just a personal truth. This is a life truth. It is a universal truth. It is simple. And yet to be able to embrace it and receive it fully is to live in a way where we are not governed by the tyranny of an image. Absorbing the simplicity of the truth about our bodies is also absorbing the simplicity and the truth of the rhythms of all life, all bodies. Sadly, the image of our body can be very divorced from the truth of our body. Our image has a much more complex vocabulary. The image of our body has a vocabulary that is filled with words of judgment and comparison and anxiety. Words about acceptability, about pleasing, about worthiness. Words that often bring with them so much tension. You know, one time I remember even speaking with someone on a retreat, you know, you know where that self-consciousness comes up and she said, you know, I've never been at home in my body. So I've never been at home anywhere. And she said, it's exactly the same here. She said, I came to this meditation retreat, you know, and I've got the wrong body. You know, I've got knees that don't go on the floor. I perm my hair and I've got the wrong clothes, you know, and I just have the wrong body for this stuff. And how that sense of being at home in our bodies is actually also what allows us to be at home in the world. And how all of the the ideas of wrong actually have nothing to do with the truth of our bodies. All of the words or the ideas of wrong have to do with the images of outer bodies. The distance between 
the truth of our bodies and the image about our bodies is one that is lessened, really lessened, actually through our willingness to see the suffering that's in the image. Just to see the suffering that's in the image. And to not, and, and to want in our own lives to not choose suffering, but to choose freedom. To seek what is true. And that's not a search and a questioning that's not just about what's happening in our bodies, but the way in which our sense of self can get defined by so many different images, can't it? Not only body images, the different ways in which our, our, our self images can be constructed on the basis of that which is not necessarily true. We do, in meditation, learn the lessons of our bodies and the lessons of life in every moment. When we sit in meditation, we learn more and more deeply that there is change, there is a rising and passing, there are feelings, thoughts, sensations, pain and pleasure, there is birth and death. There is nothing that stays the same and that we cannot prevent change. We can't have only pleasure. We can't have only birth. We can't have only life. These are lessons, I think, that we begin to learn with a certain amount of gracefulness that expresses itself, really in our willingness to let go in every moment. To try and deny those realities is a little bit like only trying to have an in-breath. You know, it's a pretty difficult experience <laughs> to try and only have an in-breath. Do you have an in-breath? You have an out-breath. To have life, you have death. To have appearing, you have passing. There's tremendous harmony in that. There's a tremendous difficulty in holding. It's not only in relationship to our bodies that we are asked to discern the difference between image and truth. But within the variety of beliefs that we hold about ourselves that can so imprison us. Now, beliefs are very interesting. Now, some of our beliefs have a really long history, don't they? I mean, from the moment that we first have memories, we can have beliefs about who we are. You know, that have be form been formed by our, our culture, by our environment, by our family, by our friends. Beliefs, you know, we don't even know when they began. Often those beliefs, of course, we see them arising and appearing in different backdrops in our lives. Beliefs about, beliefs about worth, beliefs about acceptability, beliefs about powerlessness, beliefs about inadequacy, beliefs about authority that can lead us to want to please others too much, beliefs that lead us to be overwhelmed by the voices or needs of others. There's that, that level of belief that has this long history. And there's also this level of belief that's actually formed on a moment-to-moment -moment level by what we take hold of. And usually, it's interesting the way that we are most inclined to take hold of the difficult or the challenging, the painful. When we say, I am, I'm like this, 
You know, I'm hopeless. Well, that's a fine reality. I'm always like this, we say. I always do this. This is who I am. Now, for many women, you know, pride and arrogance and inflated and exaggerated sense of self are not necessarily big issues. But I think to present, present many women with, you know, moments when they fail to meet up to their own expectations or standards or beliefs or perfection, and there's a kind of fatal attraction that gets very manifested in the voice of the critic and self-judgment and self-consciousness. Habits and beliefs that can feel very real and that can really act as a way, as a kind of prison that stops us from moving on. Sometimes I feel, you know, we, we're a lot better at mourning than celebrating. I mean, think of those moments, you know, when we lose, when our attention drifts away from our breathing, for example, in meditation, and then we notice it, that moment of noticing it. How often in those moments of noticing it, do we hear the voice that says, oh, fantastic, I'm awake again, here I am, I'm really present, I'm really connected. Or how often we hear the voice that says, oh, it again, I always blow it, I'm so hopeless at this stuff. You know, it's not uncommon, you know, many times I've met women who've had really very profound meditation experiences and they come and they say, well, I'm sure it's nothing important, you know, or it's probably menopause or something, you know. No, this is a profound meditation experience. Oh, no, that, that can't possibly be me having a profound meditation experience. It has to be a hot flush or something. The vocabulary of beliefs often features the words and the feelings, I can't, or always. Or I am, followed by a de definition that feels permanent. You know, everything else in the world is impermanent, except this conclusion I have about myself. It's sometimes the vocabulary of beliefs is, I, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't do this. I can't possibly, other people can do that. I can't do this, you know. Sometimes it's not even the words I can't, it's much more a feeling of kind of futility or despair or powerlessness. It's the very place that actually really invites some real divine curiosity. I mean, there are probably many things in life that we can't do. I mean, I can't paint a Picasso, and I'm certainly never, never ever going to set the Olympic high jump record. These are real realities around can't. I mean, no matter what I did, this would not happen. However, we can be aware is a basic reality. We can be aware. That capacity to be aware means that transformation is always a real possibility. That, that is actually not, again, this is not a good idea, this is reality. Because we can be aware, we can understand. Because we can understand, there can be transformation. This could be a mantra for our life. There isn't actually a place 
of belief that really survives that light of wise and clear attention that explores the solidity of that vocabulary of I can't. You know, it's really not that many years ago that people believed the world was flat and if you went too close to the edge, you were going to fall off. It's not that long ago. People discovered that didn't happen. Why? Because they had this sense of curiosity. Maybe it's not true. You know, it was, it's really actually only a few years ago in Switzerland that women were considered intellectually unable to hold the responsibility of voting. You know, we're talking about 10 years ago here. Recently, I, I was listening to um, an, one of the first astronauts who talked about having spacesuits available in sports stores in our lifetime. What is it that actually pushes the edges of possibility? It's not because, you know, there's some loony who goes out, you know, and zooms off the edge of the world. It's that sense of curiosity, that sense of exploration, that sense of not being satisfied with a sense of impossibility. This is really the spark of any spiritual journey. It doesn't mean that there are magical changes and shifts. But it does mean really being willing to constantly really check out those edges. Will we say, I am, and I can't? See, is this true? Is this true? Because that is actually how we discover for ourselves what is true. Nobody can give that to us. It's how we discover what is true for ourselves. And discovering what is true is actually coming to that which is authentic, which is truly authentic, which is really heartfelt, which is really at the essence of our being. This practice is not a practice, you know, of grand ambitions and becoming and striving and forcing, but it is truly a practice of cultivating the kind and wise attention of a sort of divine curiosity, of checking out what is authentic and what is true about ourselves and in ourselves and each moment. If we have just a couple of moments quietly together. 